This is To Catch a Con Man, Season 2, in the victim's voices. I will take you on another fascinating journey, but this time you will hear from other men and women that, like me, have fallen prey to the various cons, scams, and deceits by one of the most prolific and successful con artists to live and operate in the Midwest. You know him as Ricky Dugo. Could a hundred grand sustain my life? It couldn't even come close. So, so listen to me. If I was going to be in some sort of con, scam, conniving thing, it'd be for millions. It wouldn't be for $100,000. To Catch a Con Man is brought to you by Studio 847 in Long Grove, Illinois. Listener discretion is advised, as some of this programming contains language and content that might be offensive to some listeners. Join me on this adventure to catch a con man. This is Adam Albin. Coming up next, it is the summertime of 2016. We will head back to that wonderful neighborhood called Greg's Landing in Vernon Hills, Illinois. In this two-part interview, you will hear from the first victim that reached out to me after finding the Ricky Dugo Facebook spoof page. A victim I met in person at a Starbucks and shared information with on June 3rd, 2018. A victim that, like me, was trying to spread the word and protect his neighbors in Vernon Hills. This victim is one of three that testified as an other act witness, as by the time Lake County charged Ricky Dugo, his potential charges had the statutes of limitation expire. Let's meet Scott. It's November 6, 7.30 Central Time. Um, in the studio today, uh, from afar, we have um, Scott. Uh, Scott was instrumental in uh, helping me get this case off the ground. He comes to us um, uh, back in 2017-ish. He was living in the Greg's Landing area uh, of Vernon Hills. So, um, hey, Scott, how are you? Doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about uh, what was going on in Greg's Landing, um, you know, back in 2016, 2017. Yeah, I mean, for the sake of some redundancy, because I know uh, a lot of this was covered in, in uh, you know, your main podcast, but, um, you know, Rick came into our neighborhood uh, exactly as so many have already described, right? So suddenly you know there was this huge 40 foot cigarette boat parked out in front of a house that had been for sale for quite a bit 
And so it was kind of like, you know, big calling card, new neighbors in there, lots of cars, all that jazz. And we're a small neighborhood. I think it was maybe 110 houses. Sounds bigger than it is, but it was a tight community. Um, so, yeah, it didn't take long for people to start, you know, asking who the new neighbor was and, you know, all the all the usual, um, mostly just from a welcoming perspective. And, and then, you know, also why is this, you know, giant boat that takes up an entire, you know, basically the width of a house. Uh, you know, parked outside is, is somebody going on a, you know, a boat ride anytime soon because it's, you know, not up to code for, you know, boats like that to be parked on the street. So it was an unusual scene for more than one reason. But uh, I wouldn't end up needing Rick for probably another couple of weeks, um, mostly because at the time, you know, I was working and traveling quite a bit. So I wasn't necessarily, you know, it was, it was early summer or something like that so people were starting to come out of the woodwork and everybody was chatting with each other and uh we'll talk in a second about flamingo fridays were about to start up but um yeah i bet he was there for a solid two weeks before i finally met him for the first time great and and so he moves in the day he moves in he pulls in his dually he's got his 46 foot cigarette uh, boat in tow i mean it's pretty odd right I mean, why isn't this thing at a marina? Do you think that that was just a, a blatant um, flashing of the ego of look, everybody? In hindsight, you know, in hindsight, of course, right? It's one of those, it's easy to look back on it and see what it was, you know, now. Back then, like I said, I legitimately thought, hey, these people just moved in. So maybe they just needed to, maybe they came from somewhere else and they needed to have the boat parked out front. You know, in Vernon Hills, you can call the, the local police and, and get kind of a temporary permit to park on the street overnight or, or what have you. So I thought maybe, all right, it'll be there for a day and then it'll go. And so I didn't really think anything of it, to be honest with you. I thought it was just part of the move. Um, but yeah, as, as time would progress, you know, you'd see more of that flashiness. How long was the boat out there? Do you know? Do you remember? I, I can't say, like I said, because I was traveling a lot, but it was it was enough for people to talk about seeing it more than once. Got it. So whether it stayed there or it went back and forth, I can't recall. But, you know, like I said, it was just there for a day. People would have talked about it, you know, to see it. But it was kind of like it's still there or it's there again. I mean, it was a topic of conversation in the neighborhood. Great. All right. So a couple weeks later, you meet Rick Dugo. How do you meet him? Um, well, anybody who's met him, so for those folks who, you know, uh, listen and have met him, uh, he's he's pretty uh, outgoing. You know, I think you at one point described him as being, you know, very socially skilled and, you know, he probably would have made a great salesman or in a legitimate job, you know. So he um, he really took, you know, no time and kind of working his way around uh, these Flamingo Fridays. And for those who don't know what that is, it's really just an informal gathering in a neighbor's backyard. It's kind of a bring your own drink situation. Everybody kind of brings some food to share and you just kind of hang out and, and chat. And it's, it's pretty low key. Um, and so, yeah, it was pretty quick, uh, you know, of me arriving before he just came up and introduced himself. And he's a, a very large guy, not just in, in sort of muscle mass and all that, but he's tall. You know, I don't know exactly how tall he is, but it was, you know, I'm 5'10". You know, he had a good four to six inches on me. Um, and, you know, just very, I don't want to say loud, because he wasn't necessarily loud, but just very outgoing. You know, just you know, shook your hand, you know, super firm, and, and just 
kind of tried to make his presence known. Uh, that's the best way I could describe it. It was, it was just he he wanted to be seen, and it didn't take a lot to sort of see that. So, you know, again, how much of that is revisionist memory? But, you know, as I look back on it, it's like this guy wanted to be seen. He was trying to command attention. Yes, absolutely. Great. And, and at the time, you know, benefit of the doubt, new neighbor, just kind of like, you know, we've had for perspective a lot of ex-Bears uh, we had uh, the quarterback coach of the Bears we had a lot of like local names living in our neighborhood because a couple of the homes were actually owned either by the Bears organization or a broker that would lease two players and coaches so we were used to having these either bigger personalities or you know athletes in the neighborhood just because it's relatively close to the training facility and you know it's not a super um upscale neighborhood in the sense that we were getting the Brian Urlachers. We were getting the, you know, the guys who were going to be playing for a year or two on a contract, or maybe they were rookies. And anyway, so we were used to the, that type of personality, but this was just different. Right. Uh, very different. I'm sure. Um, at what point, um, I mean, at, at the same time, are you meeting his wife and his kids and, and all of that? I take it that, you know, they're all coming to Flamingo Fridays. Um, so my kids would go to school with his kids, although they were younger. Um, so yeah, we did see him and there was kind of a tendency for the older kids to watch the younger kids at the Flamingos. So, I mean, I had seen them. I hadn't actually, I didn't meet his kids until later, but at the time, yeah, I mean, both him and his wife and the, and at least a couple of the kids were there. And I don't recall if mine were there or not, but, you know, like I said, typically the older kids were kind of helping watch the younger kids. Sometimes somebody would, you know, give the older kids a few bucks to say, watch them for a little bit so that they could, you know, focus on a conversation, and, you know, not be, you know, uh, having to parent the entire time. Right. So, and, and how often are Flamingo Fridays? Is it every Friday night? Is it, is it every couple of weeks? It's, it's typically every Friday unless there was a hole in the schedule where nobody volunteered yet. Great. <clears throat> Did that rotate like from house to house to house? Yeah, it was never at the same house twice in a, in a season. But um, but to your point, going back to that, um, so you know we met. It was pretty quick, and I would say you know within ten minutes he asked if we could exchange phone numbers, which again, new neighbor made sense. You know, lots of questions for you know what what cable provider should I get? You know, what are the what are the things I need to know? So I didn't really think twice about exchanging numbers with him. And uh, I would say it was probably, maybe it wasn't a week, but it was a few days before I'd hear from him again. Okay. And what was that like? What what, what happened then? Uh, literally, it was a, a quick stop by. It was, hey, are you around? And then, uh, you know, I just walked out the front of my house. He drove up and I don't recall at the time if it was in the, uh, it was in the dually or it was another car with the limo tinted windows, you know, so it comes rolling up and then you can't see who's in the car until the window comes down. Um, and then he got out of the car and just kind of briefly said, um, you know, do you like money? And it was, uh, it was just such a silly, stupid question. I, you know, I just sort of like brushed it off. Um, and, uh, I, I just didn't necessarily like where the conversation was going. So I, so I don't remember if I feigned that I had a call or this or that, but it just felt like a little bit awkward. So I brushed him off the first time and then it would be a day or two later. 
I don't remember if we were walking in front of his house or or he walked in front of our house. Um, he then sort of realized that his first approach wasn't, you know, necessarily the best approach with me. And so he sort of jumped right into this uh, electronics opportunity in a, in like, just super fast. Like, it wasn't like, hey, how's it going? It was, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, you know, if this was something you were interested in. So, um, so you're, you're, you're saying within... Within a couple of weeks of him moving in, he shows up to it your house. Like, it was like the third time I met him. Yeah. He shows up to your house. He, well, he hits you up. He pulls up. He's got his windows tinted, you know, and he just flat out pitches you. It's wild. I mean, the ball's on this guy, right? <laughs> it's crazy. All right. So keep on going, Scott. Like I said, particularly as you look back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, at this point... Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned Rick's name or, or Rick's wife's name at this point. So I'm sure. assuming that's yeah, go ahead. in the realm. Okay, so at this point, Michelle had already been uh, talking to Shannon a bit. Um, you know, they had a pool uh, at their house. So it was a bit of a destination, too. And I, I don't know, recall if Michelle had gone swimming over there yet or not. But they were now neighbors, like legitimately neighbors where, you know, our wives were talking and, and this and that. So at this point, you know, when Rick brings this thing up, I'm thinking, all right, this is a neighbor who's now got kids in the school system. You know, there's roots down. Uh, even though it's a small period of time, there, there's roots down. Anyway, so he brings up uh, this pitch where he basically can buy, you know, large-scale electronics at a deep discount. Different from uh, what others experienced, his pitch to me was just straight-up investment. Like, hey, if you just want to do kind of a quick turn, um, you know, we're going to be, I could use extra capital. It'll just help me scale up the deal. Uh, it was kind of pitched like, you know, this is just something some of the neighbors are doing without ever really mentioning, you know, who's who. So it was a lot different than what your experience was where you really kept playing the friend card. For me, it was more, hey, I just want to scale this up and you know, I'm new to the neighborhood and it'd be a great win. Uh, so, you know, again, we didn't really get into numbers at the time. But, um, you know, I, I said, okay, listen, I'll talk to my wife. I don't really, you know, do anything like that on my own. Uh, you know, I'll get back to you. So I had enough of the details, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really ask a lot of questions. So I, I talked to my wife either that day or the next day because there really wasn't, you know, this huge interest on my part to necessarily do it. And she was like, well, you know, how much are we talking? Honestly, we didn't, we didn't really talk about it. So, you know. If we wanted to take a swing, you know, it's whatever number you're comfortable with. And I don't remember if she gave the number or I gave the number, but, uh, you know, we sort of came to like, you know what? We play a lot in the stock market. We, we do some risky investments. And at the time I'd been doing stock options and some of our, some of those arrangements, you know, would go to zero and some of them would triple. You, you just never really knew what options are volatile. And so the standard lot that I would do at the time was something like $5,000. So, I don't remember how he came up to the odd number of six, but it was like, you know what? Treat it like a stock deal. If it doesn't go great, you know, it's fine. It's you know, not, not that we can want to, you know, lose $6,000, but the neighbor, yeah, it's going to be really awkward if we're walking around the neighborhood and there's a guy who owes us six grand. So, you know, seems like a relatively safe bet at a minimum, just, you know, doesn't go the way we want, ask for the money back. So reach back out to him again. Uh, or he reached out, I think, in fact, and just said, hey, any interest? And 
I don't remember if it was a day or two afterwards. And so I said, sure, you know, we'll do it. And I, we agreed on the six and, uh, you know, whether it was a, a day or two after, I don't remember. I have it all in my text thread. You know, I just went to the bank and, and gave them the cash. And then it was, you know, four or five days of just kind of radio silence, which was fine because we weren't expecting, I think you said at that time, it, it took about a week. Uh, it, it might have been up to two, but it was supposed to be a very quick turnaround. Let's go, uh, if, if I can interrupt just for a second, let's talk about what the promise was. Um, the investment uh, in this electronics opportunity, what does your money get you? Oh, it's supposed to be double. So you give me six, I give you 12. And uh, again, you know, we don't really get into the details of it, but, but I kept asking too, like, what's the difference at this point? Because he did throw his numbers out there and, and his were something like, I'm putting 150 into this. And certainly there was a bit of a, and I sort of skipped over this, like, are you sure you only want to do six? Because, you know, opportunity here, double them, you know, make it worth your while. I was like, listen, this is the this is the number that I play, you know, the stock market with. So that's the number you're getting that's sort of locked in. But yeah, he said it, it would double. So I didn't get any of the, you know, it could be triple or anything else. I, I maybe at this point he had refined his pitch a little bit, knew that if he started changing things around, it would be sketchy. Um, so yeah, the number was six, but what was interesting was a about, you know, five days in or so, and again, me traveling, so I probably just didn't even think twice about it because it was probably on the road, um, you know, pinged him and said, hey, you know, how are things going? And he was like, everything's great, right on track. And then it was the next day he came back and said, is there any chance you could put some more in? I had somebody back out. Ah. Um, hmm. and, and this is his, you know, typical playbook. I had already talked to Michelle and said, Hey, you know, is this our final final on the 6,000? And she was like, yeah, that's the number. <laughs> so it was relatively easy for me to tell him, you know, no, don't worry about it. Um, you know, we're good with what we've got in. And uh, he alluded to the fact that because this other guy backed out, you know, the deal could fall apart. And uh, I, I sort of said at the time, like, listen, it falls apart, it falls apart. You know, I'll take my money back. But, you know, I, you're, I'm not the only other person in this. I'm sure there's plenty of other people. We, we don't really know each other that well. So, um, you know, I remember it being a little bit of a red flag. So anyway, he took the no. He didn't like the no. But it was a couple days later that he called me back and said, listen, I know you don't want to go in for any more, but we got an issue with the trucks and the drivers and the this and that. And I don't recall the exact number, but it was something like I need $2,500. Again, it's all my text, and I could go back and, and pull it up. But I was like, yeah, man, I got to tell you, like, if, if 2500 is standing in the way, like, isn't that a problem for you? Because, like, you know, you seem to have a lot of money there, buddy. You know, you got the boat, you got the cars. Um, yeah, I'm thinking you could probably solve the 2500 and uh, it's like, yeah, it's all tied up. You know, it's all tied up in this deal. And, you know, Shannon's not aware of what I do, so I can't go to the bank. I can't pull this out. And it was the whole, you know, don't tell anybody about it thing. And so ultimately, I had, at the time, I was like playing at the track and, you know, doing some some kind of just Mickey Mouse gambling. So I, I had like 1200 bucks on me or some, some number like that. 
I was like, I'll tell you what, I will give you half. You cover the other half and just, just get this thing done in the next couple of days. Cause it's already kind of bothering me, you know, the number of variables that are coming up here. But like, if it doesn't come through, you can't bridge the gap. Just pull it out. Like let's be done and, and call it a, a good shot. So I bet it was three days after that. He came back and said, is there anything else you could, you could do because, you know, with another driver pull out, we burn through some more of the cash than we expected. And just out of curiosity, I was like, what do you, what do you need? And he was like, 800 bucks. I'm like, Rick, big red flag, man. You don't have $800? Like, it was bad that you didn't have 2500 but 800 And out of all the money you've got in here, you can't just, like, throw somebody a bridge or something? Like, you got all this capital tied up in the deal. Like, make a trade. Um, and he was like, well, I'm going to be driving by your house anyway, so let me just talk to you. And so he swung by, and I had 400 in cash on me. I was like, I don't want to have this conversation ever again. Here's half the cash I have on me, and I gave him another 200. So I had been Mickey Mouse now out of, like, another $1,400 again exactly is, is moot. But the last 200 bothered me more than the first 6000 by a lot. I remember thinking to myself... I've already been robbed. Like, I, I mean, I knew it in that moment. It was like, I remember walking in and having a conversation with my wife later that night that I'm pretty sure this whole thing was a scam. I don't know how this guy's going to deal with, like, walking around the neighborhood. But who puts a deal like this together and is a few hundred dollars short? Like, it was just, it was crazy to me. Um, and then the next time we spoke, that's when things started to get a little more tense because it was just excuse after excuse. It was um, one of the things was, and you got to remember, his deal was similar to the one you mentioned where it was a lot of TVs. And then one of the next conversations was a bunch of the refrigerators were the wrong brand. I'm like, why are there refrigerators involved in this? I thought this was a, an arrangement to get, you know, TVs into a bar. He's like, well, yeah, but refrigerators were part of the deal, and they were the wrong brand. Okay, well, deliver the rest of it and, and swap up the fridges afterwards. You know, I don't think it's all pending on, you know, that. And it was just a lot of excuses like that that kept coming up, and none of them made any sense. Like, it was just, how, how did, like, refrigerators came out of nowhere? And I sort of knew at that point, you know, and again, it's always a, a series of revelations like I know but I still have hope I know but I still have hope or you know he's a neighbor come on maybe he's just kind of not that smart but he's not you know a criminal you, you kind of go through all the thoughts in your head of this this can't be as bad even though I know it's that bad and so a couple more weeks would go by uh, and finally I just said all right get me my principal back. And it was more or less like, forget all the additional money and stuff that, that I gave you. I want the six grand back because the other money was kind of like my play money. That was just cash. You know, it was money that I'd, I'd used to go to the track or whatever, but the 6,000 that came out of the bank. And so to me, you know, I owed that back uh, to my wife and it, it wasn't, I, I brought the deal to her. So, you know, I felt responsible for it. And as a matter of principle and her hanging out with his wife, I was like, this, we're going to use that pressure. I'm like Rick, you 
said don't tell anybody but michelle knows that you know we went in on this and she's going to talk to shan and it's going to get pretty awkward and it's like no you didn't tell michelle she can't know like rick i don't want to tell you you know <laughs> she, she knows the money's missing i had to explain it to her at some point um so i didn't necessarily tell him at the beginning by the way that she was part of the decision so instead i sort of played the pressure factor of, of you know it's now been a month and the monthly statement showed up and so she's going to ask questions about five and six thousand dollars just leave the bank account um and he's like, well, I could just jeopardize the deal in its entirety. And this thing, like, Rick, the, the deal was in jeopardy within the first few days. You know, like, what do you mean? <laughs> At this point, I think this is the this is the best swing I got is, you know, just bringing your wife into the picture because that might add some pressure. You know, unbeknownst to me, she probably knew about it the whole time. I don't uh, disagree with that statement at all. So... Um... So he's coming up with excuses. You're on to him. You still have hope. Um, that's an interesting thing because I think it's something all of the victims go through. Um, and it's it's this this feeling like you know you've gotten yourself into something. You, you can't fathom the fact that this guy is going to screw you over. How could your neighbor, somebody that you're going to see all the time, how is this guy going to fuck you over, Right. Because you're going to have to see him every day. You're going to have to see his, his kids and his wife. Like, so it just becomes this like unimaginable thing. And I think that's for you, it's a lot like me at the gym. You just kind of like, nah, there's no way that that could ever happen. Right? So keep on going. What happens next? I'm going to say, by the way, for you, I think it was even crazier because he had put his roots down at that gym for years right he waited for us it was kind of like it was almost more irresponsible on our part because you know the guy was there for a few weeks but you know buys a house that feels like well at least you thought he bought a house we didn't know we didn't find out <laughs> later you buy a house um but for us it was like you know those are some real roots coming down um anyway so you know fast forward another few weeks so now let's just say we're six weeks from the original situation at this point i just call him out i'm like rick you know, this is clearly obviously not going to happen. So at a minimum, I need you to just come clean because, you know, this is, yeah, I got I to gotta talk to Michelle and I got to explain that the $6,000 was incinerated and that you incinerated it. Uh, and he's like, listen, I'm, I'm with my family because we're, this is all in text, by the way. Every dialogue we have, every time is in text, which in hindsight for a con man, probably the stupidest thing you could ever do. He was always really ambivalent about talking on the phone, yeah. which I find hilarious because, you know, while you might have recorded a conversation at some point, most people aren't recording conversations, but every text is recorded just by default. So really kind of a questionable practice in hindsight, but he always insisted on text. So anyway, he's like, listen, this, this isn't a conversation I can have right now. I'm with my family. And at that point, I just said, listen, either you're here in the next 30 minutes or I'm having the conversation with my wife and I'm guessing Shannon's phone's going to ring shortly thereafter. And he just basically responded with a profanity five minutes. And it's broad daylight. Uh, I don't remember if it was a Saturday Actually, you know what? It wasn't. It was It was a weekday because I was working from home. I bring that up because there wasn't a lot of uh, foot traffic or anything on the street. 
So anyway, I sit out on the porch. I wait for him to come. He comes walking up, and I've got an elevated porch. It's probably two steps. And he stays on the sidewalk level. So I'm and considering his height. It's kind of nice that I've got a little bit of an escalated perch. <laughs> and so I'm like, Rick, just now we're in person. Just admit that you stole the money. I'm just curious also, like, did you, did you involve other neighbors or did you just target me? And that's when he about lost it. And so he walks up the steps and closes the gap to me. He's maybe 18 inches from me. So now he's looking down on me because he's almost a full head taller. And I don't recall the exact words, but it was similar to the exchange you had in the parking lot. Don't talk to me like that. Don't talk to me like I'm some punk. Don't disrespect me like that. All the words that you would use if you were in like some type of street gang or something where he thinks this is going to fly. And while I'm not saying that, you know, I would have welcomed an altercation with somebody at a hundred pounds on me. I kind of felt like this was this guy's move. So instead of stepping back, I stepped into him. And so now there's six inches between us. And I'm like, you're on my porch. I literally have a ring doorbell standing behind me. If you're going to physically threaten me, this is the place to do it. So, you know, either you have an explanation or step off and get back to the sidewalk and explain yourself. And you could tell he was kind of like, okay, like, first of all, surprised that this significantly smaller guy would have stepped, you know, into his space. Um, but moreover, you know, wasn't going to be intimidated by this guy. So he backs off and starts to describe that it's just been a series of unfortunate incidents and that he's getting it all resolved and everything's going to be fine. And we're going to joke about this at some point. I'm like, that's great, but I'm looking at your house. I'm looking at your cars. I'm looking at your boat. Just give me my six grand. Like, I don't really care about the deal anymore, Rick. Talk to your wife, explain it all, and say that you, you know, had a bad business arrangement with a neighbor, if that's what you need to say. But I think we both know that you stole money from me. For whatever reason, you know, you felt like $6,000 was going to change your life. You did this. You don't have to admit it. Just give me the money back. And, you know, again, it's the whole, please stop, you know, accusing me of being a scammer. I've got so many friends that have been involved in the deal. I need you to just stop thinking that way. You know, a year from now, we're going to laugh about this. The, the whole kind of just the same script over and over and over. And it gets to the point where it's like on repeat. And I'm not having any of it. Like, Rick, I'm going to give you, what, a few days? Come up with the cash or Shannon's getting the call. It's just that simple. It's like, we're not, we're not playing this game anymore. And uh, he's like, listen, don't do anything. Just give me two days. We'll sort something out. So he leaves. I don't hear from him for close to a week. So finally, oh, go ahead. One question is during this time, have you had any sort of conversations at this point with any of your other neighbors specifically around oddities that you had noticed <clears throat> conversations that you've had with Rick Dugo? Have any of your neighbors come out and said anything back to you? Is this all kind of under the table? Um, so at this point, no. It's like at, at the point of that confrontation, no. But in the days that would follow, I would start having conversations with a few other neighbors. And 
None of the other neighbors would firsthand say they were involved in any investment with them. They all kept saying they heard of other people that were involved. Okay. It would be two or three months before individual neighbors would start chiming in and saying, yes, we gave them money. Yes, we gave them money. Same deal. It was apt. It was this and that. But I think kind of for the same terms he kept putting on the table that don't tell anybody because it'll jeopardize the deal, that everybody kind of had the sense of hope that they were going to get their money back. Now, I can't speak to the dollar amounts because I don't know. And frankly, I just felt like it was private and I wasn't really wanting to take it any further. I, my view at the time was this was maybe a one-off thing and I didn't think of it as a sort of a serial scam artist thing, which I should have because that would have made a whole lot of sense. Like, why do it once? But who would do that for, you know, let's say he collectively got 40 grand out of the neighborhood. It just seemed like kind of silly. Um, and then I'm trying to think... It was a week before we spoke again. I reached out to him and, uh, you know, nothing. And uh, eventually he got back to me with another series of delays and, and lies and this and that. And I don't recall if my wife called his wife directly, but there was an exchange at some point, whether or not it was just, you know, walking in the neighborhood or, or what have you but you know the cat was out of the bag and you know we more or less said hey you know your husband's a thief and stole our money and probably stole a lot of other people's money and you know it's gonna be pretty awkward around here and you know our kids know your kids and we're gonna keep the kids out of it they don't need to know about it but you know at some point you know, we can't account for all the other neighbors who also have kids in the school who might be talking about it. It was almost like a heads up, like things could get awkward for the kids at school because, you know, words out. Um, it really didn't escalate. You would have thought it would have. You would have thought Rick would have been like, that's it. You know, you just, you know, ruined the whole thing. But at this point, he was still playing the con. And, and continue to say, you know, two more weeks, two more weeks. And remember, that deal was in July. Of 20. I still have. Yeah, that was July of 20. Okay. It was July of 2017. Yeah. I just want to clearly state the date, July of 2017. I bring that up because, like, the entire escalation took place over about a 30-day period to the point where, like, the cat was out of the bag. It could have been six, six weeks, you know, again, who knows. But it was sometime in August where you know, neighbors were talking and everybody kind of knew something was amiss. He was still playing the game that the money was coming in October. And at some point, you know, whether it was October or early November, I just sent him like a pretty lengthy text that, you know, we're gonna be getting a word about you, you know, out in the neighborhood and throughout as much of Vernon Hills as we can, uh, that this is kind of your game. So just be aware, there's not gonna be a lot of takers out there. And that's gonna be more or less, you know, our mission is to make sure people know never to give you any money. And I don't remember exactly when the moving truck showed up, but it was, I don't think you'd know actually. Do you know when the moving truck showed up? The moving truck showed up May 29th of 2018. 
So he so, was. I mean, he was. You're he, talking. He was still in the neighborhood for another five months after I sent him sort of a what I would call a cease and desist, as in stop sending me you know these fake timelines, these fake deadlines, and all this other stuff, and that I would be letting people know you know who he was. So we didn't see him. Like, yeah, I was going to. I drove in and out of the neighborhood like a ghost. Yeah, the remainder of the time he was there. And that's what I was going to ask. So at some point. He stops attending Flamingo Fridays. Maybe they wrapped up in the summer. Is there any neighborhood activities? They wrap up in the summer, but he stopped attending them, you know, long before that cease and desist text because the awkwardness, you know, obviously would have been a factor. So October comes, October-ish, winter's coming. You send him a cease and desist. All right, keep on going. This is wild. Yeah, so at that point, it was done. Like, from my perspective, it was just done. It was, you know, again, I equate it to, like, a really bad stock deal. It was just gone. And from time to time, we talked to neighbors. And, you know, it was one of those, you know, people didn't like to talk about it, but they all kind of agreed, like, this guy was, you know, a real asshole. And, oh, and by the way, in November-ish, he would invite people over for UFC fights and it was a, like, bring your own beer situation. So first of all, who invites people over to their house? Like Flamingo is one thing, but you're gonna say, I'm gonna have this event. And so we heard about this afterwards. We never went to these UFC things, but um, he was continuing to have people over almost into November and then that all shut down. And so by December, like I said, they were going in and out of that neighborhood with the, the windows rolled up, in and out, you know, no stopping for anybody. And then, you know, when it, when, whenever it would have been May, they had moved out. And I'm pretty sure it was that summer, Adam, if I recall correctly, I don't know, that you reached out to me or that you, you made the, the spoof page. So Am made, I right on the timing? I might be wrong on that. So, mate, you're, you're, you're correct. So he cons me in March. Um, the Dirty comes out in, in late May, May 20-something. May 29th, I created the spoof page. May 29th, coincidentally, he moves out in the in the early, early morning as Faraz is flying into Chicago, um, or you know, comes to Chicago to to, to ev- uh, for an official eviction. Um, and then you and I, um, the spoof page goes up, and then somehow you reached out to me. I got an email from you. Right. Um, it was an anonymous email, and then we met. But let's let's go into like um, so. So he moves out, and then, I mean, at what point? At what point are you totally confident that other people in your neighborhood had fallen prey to Rick Dugo? Is that back in that October time frame? Yeah, I, I mean, and I, again, nameless and not nameless, but nobody was acknowledging it. It was them personally. Nobody was bringing up numbers. And then I'd say, you know, within a few weeks afterwards, suddenly some people were saying, yeah, we gave him a few thousand and yeah, we gave him a few thousand. And uh, others were just, no, I know so-and-so, you know, gave him, you know, some money. So it was just kind of funny how, because we were pretty open about it. We were like, yeah, no, we, we did a stupid thing. You know, it's just, at this point, it was water under the bridge. I was more angry that he might still be actively doing it which, by the way, would have been why I would have reached out to you so quickly, because at that point, my mentality was, oh, my God, despite getting the word out and, and we got the word out like we 
we would have how many neighborhoods are in Craig's Landing? Call it 12 yeah. know, full subdivisions, something like that. Correct. We would have been in contact with people in eight of them to spread the word, including, by the way, you know, where he would end up on that Crenshaw address. So everybody, in theory, assume, you know, if, if people all talk to each other, that, that word should have been pretty widespread by, you know, May of 2018. So I was like, I said, when I saw the spoof page, I was a little bit like, all right, so somebody feels like the word needs to get out faster um, because I could have told you people on the the eastmost part, because I was on the western westmost part of, of Greg's, people on the easternmost part all knew who he was and knew what the scam was. And I even had a high school friend who was a mutual acquaintance of ours, who when I reached out to him and the whole thing was kind of unraveling and this was before I was really kind of making sure other people knew he was like oh I wish I had known I would have warned you like this is he's definitely you know not somebody you know you want to get involved with I'm like you knew he moved into my neighborhood like how about the heads up uh so I was a little disappointed in that you know because I do feel like if if this individual knew him as long as he did and and he kind of knew that there was a pattern going on uh, yeah, it was a little bit of, you probably should have given a heads up because we were very assertive in letting people know once we had our experience. Right. So you were doing your own little vigilantism in, in, within Greg's Landing. That's awesome that you guys were it trying. It was just a warning, you know, just a straight up, hey, you know, don't give them money. It's a scam. Uh, and, you know, without putting it on Facebook or anything like that, because to your point, I, I was a little worried that, you know, if you just, because we had the Greg's Landing page, we had our own page. Uh, I was a little worried about putting something, you know, out in a, in a you know, named publication, but I was very comfortable having conversations with, you know, friends that I played poker with in the various subdivisions and, and letting them know, you know, what, what this guy's pattern was. Yeah. It's awesome that you did that. I don't, I didn't, that's one piece of this I never knew. Um, so, had you lived in Greg's Landing at the time, I might have helped. Yeah, unfortunately, I was living in Gurney, but to, to that point, um, you know, now we're in Long Grove. To, to that point, though, it worked. It actually worked to all of our benefit because the spoof page on purpose was directing traffic, or at least the goal was to, to direct his, his view to the Vernon Hills neighborhood. I had known that one of your neighbors who may be one of my coworkers also was taken. He was the first person I knew that was taken. So without him knowing, I, I, I wanted to keep the spoof page and the direction within Greg's Landing. I had to do that on purpose so that it would I, um, insulate me out in Gurney to be able to fire off as many of these salvos his way that I could, because I knew it was just a matter of time before the page got taken down. So just Which, to, by the way, quick quick little side note, it worked brilliantly because one of the first people he thought did it was me. Yeah, and let's so let's talk about that. So so you see the page, Scott, and um, you send me uh, an email, and the email says, I, and I read this one out to everybody. Don't know who you are. Don't care to know your real name. Just to give you a heads up. Um, 
He conned me and six of my neighbors for over $25,000 in the Greg's, you know, landing neighborhood. Um, And he's, he's, he's going around asking other neighbors um, to, to get with me to take down the Facebook spoof page. So he's actually at that time when he's, again, he just moved out of that, that house. You've reached out to me within two days of the spoof page. He's, He's trying to get you to take this page down. So, so tell me not, a little bit not about by that. Communicating with me because he knows you right. know, we're, we're not having any conversations. So he's communicating to others that know me that he knows it's me. And I'm, and I'm like literally laughing. I'm like, that's fantastic because I just shared the page. Um, you know, so it's one of those like, hey, heads up, this this is a real thing. There's a there's a page out here that, that kind of you know whatever. Um, and again, whether or not I share it through the, the actual link, you know, share this, or at the time, maybe it was just a screenshot, I don't recall. But anyway, uh, it was just one of those, like, I'm going to reinforce the message that I've been telling people already, but, you know, why would I share a page that wasn't mine, I guess. But anyway, uh, yeah, I heard that he was really pissed and, you know, basically he was going to the police and, and all this other stuff. And I just thought it was hilarious because, you know, I, I'm in tech. I've been in IT forever. And, you know, I knew nothing that, first of all, I didn't create it to begin with, but even if I had, you know, there was nothing that could trace it back to me because, you know, there was no IP or, or anything that was going to come my way. And also, you know, I don't know what the law is around creating a spoof page, but, you know, plenty of people do it. And I, I don't really think they're, they're going to be too worried about, you know, a con artist's, you know, page getting put out there, you know, alerting people of a scam that's, you know, real. Con man moves into Greg's Landing and within weeks starts to prey on his new neighbors by pitching his fictitious opportunities. Within a few months, he turns his neighbors into victims. And in part two, coming up next, we will hear Scott continue on with his story of being strung along by Ricky Dugo.